Hi, I'm Amy. Hi, I'm Roisin. Hi, I'm Tara. Welcome to Yonic Boom. The podcast hosted by three deadly feminist midwives exploring women's reproductive and sexual health. Welcome back. This is our episode on (laughs) labour. Sorry, Amy. Sorry, that was... Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> normally that's what ha- normally it's the person who says it, isn't it? Did you just pause that? No, I didn't. Are we still recording? We're still recording, we're, Amy. Yes, this we're is happening again. We're still recording. <laughs> um, we're consummate professionals. We're back in studio on our bumper recording weekend. Whoop, whoop. Um, so we're jumping straight in because this is a whopper episode. Um, we're going to breeze past the news and go straight to the midwifery bit. Um, We're talking about labour today. So for um, the purposes of being clear, we're talking about, I'm using air quotes, normal (laughs) labour. So we're talking about labour that is a spontaneous onset, a vaginal delivery, happening at term so 37 weeks plus and where your baby's head is down so you're going to have a head first baby coming out of you yeah although we're not actually getting to the birth part today no so we're talking right up until that point right when up until that right point where right you start pushing up. yeah yeah next episode we'll get into the, the crowning and the ring of fire yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the poo <laughs> well I mean there could be poo there before poo. there's always poo there's always poo yeah always so I suppose to be uh, to start at the start we'll talk about definitions of labour so there is a huge amount of definitions of labour out there to be found on the internet so Mm -hmm. just be careful of what information you are accessing Um, it's a lot from kind of a deciphering a point of view it's a lot of different labels for a lot of the same thing Yeah. so uh, some people would talk about labour in stages some people would talk about it in phases this is my question to you midwives Mm. so normally we would say first stage labour second stage labour third stage Mm labour and then there's latent and active phases yeah so do you would you say there's latent and active phases to every stage of labour or are they different labels for the same thing I think for me the latent and the active is probably more just to do with the first stage of labour yeah. Yeah. I think. I feel okay. the same. And then yeah. you're very much in in active labour. Yeah. But do you not think there can be like a little latent part of the second stage where you don't have that urge to push yet? Yeah, I or guess. Or would you put that still in the first stage of labour? Uh, well, the definition of the first stage of labour that I would work out would be the, until... Urge to push. Uh, until the urge to push. Yeah. yeah. No, oh, I was going dilatation. to say until full dilatation, actually. Okay. So I suppose, yeah, potentially there is a latent phase of, of the... Um, Call the rest and be thankful face. <laughs> it is. I'm sure so many people who've had babies feel really yeah. thankful well, in it, that time period. Well, it's, you know, the bit where so they're fully dilated and then your body just has a break. So the contractions ease off. Ease off, yeah. You, feel, you get a bit you of a rest. You feel really sleepy. You feel kind of like a wave of love and then you're ready to push. I say this, people listen to this going, shut the fuck up. Yeah. Shut the front door in. <laughs> yeah, that is not. Um, so yeah, I suppose. Yeah, so I suppose, yeah, yeah, I suppose yeah. I asked that yeah. just to say that even for ourselves who are quite experienced in looking after people in labour, 
that it's not a there's no one clear cut def- definition no. so if you're out there looking for uh, you're in labour or you're not it can, there can be a lot of grey areas and a lot of different stages and phases and a yeah. lot of nuance to it so don't be disheartened if you're not where you think you're, you are in your labour yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so the World Health Organization recently defined the first stage of labour as the time period characterised by regular painful uterine contractions so that's where you would feel your uterine or your tummy getting really tight and hard um, and then relaxing um, yeah. and it happens sort of rhythmically and at regular intervals and obviously first stage of labour that can happen for start happening very infrequently say every 20 to 30 minutes lasting about 20 to 40 seconds and then it increases right up to having regular contractions three to five minutes apart mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, and that stage of labour, first stage of labour here by the World Health Organisation, they're defining it until full dilatation of the cervix. Mm-hmm. Um, and second stage of labour as the time between full dilatation of the cervix to the birth of your baby. So that's what we'll, we'll be covering right up to the end of first stage of labour um, in this uh, episode. They also include then involuntary urge to push mm-hmm. and expulsive uterine contractions. That's when your baby is being pushed out of your body as your second stage. And then there's a third stage of labour, which is the period after the birth of your baby, ending with the birth I don't know, of the placenta and I, fetal membranes. I say the birth of the placenta. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I've ever said that. Yeah. Are you but like I I'm looking forward to the placenta chat in the next episode. Yeah. You know I love a placenta. It's going to be good. Um, they also, the World Health Organization also say that there is, oh, where's me little thing on? They say the latent first phase. So this is where it gets confusing because obviously we're talking about first stage, second stage, but I'm still, this is all first stage of labour, but this is latent first phase. Yeah. So they say the latent first phase is up to five centimetres. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Active first phase is five to ten centimetres. So yeah. your full dilatation. And then your second phase happens. Second phase, second stage is yeah. the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ten centimetres to delivery. Third phase. So this is like where you're. if you're looking up information, you can find stages, phases. Yeah. There is no kind of research to show an established length of time for your latent first phase of labour. So how long it takes your body to get from starting those initial really irregular, um, far apart contractions to when you're up to kind of five centimetres. But approximately, I thought this was kind of long from the World Health Organization, active first phase. So that five to 10 centimetres in a first labour would be approximately 12 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I suppose the World Health Organization is operating off of a very particular set of kind of research and evidence because they're working more in lower income They're working countries. more with very much spontaneous onset. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. people who are laboring li- in an environment yeah. where they're... And they're, they're limited in how they can labor. intervene to yeah. speed up your labor. Yeah. So they're kind of li- having to leave a longer yeah. phase. Yeah. Mm. But also as much as we hate to think it like we are conditioned into yeah and I was just going to say like we're yeah. obviously looking at it from a particular perspective of knowing that we in kind of western world 
maternity care very much put pregnant people on a clock in their labour and expect them to be through their labour by 12 hours as opposed to that just one portion of their labour being 12 hours Mm -hmm. so I just thought that was interesting yeah Um, then and I think it's I think it's actually no harm to just remind everybody ourselves as in remind ourselves that it can take that long yeah the slow labour and that's okay if you're having the slow labour yeah <laughs> difference between obviously slow labour and you know well no like this, the labor slow labour is a du- well, the slow labour is like a made up Dublin phenomenon is it like a back labour so love the phrase of back labour yeah so like your slow oh, labour actually will be, some people have said that to me recently I had the slow labour yeah. for five days yeah so for people who are listening you might have heard it it is I think it is very much associated very much a Dublin expression Um basically where you're having irregular contractions they're not necessarily true contractions you're not in labour um, but obviously you've been experiencing some level of discomfort mm-hmm. and which is normal it's very common it's like and it's, it's happening and it's a really tiring it's it can yeah. be really exhausting yeah it is it's a late of the phase. first stage of labour yeah but there's so much happening and like when when we get into the the physiology of what's actually happening there is so much going on, particularly for first time labours. Um, there's so much change that has to that has yeah. to happen. There's a huge amount of work going yeah. on in your body. It's amazing. So just some other kind of peer reviewed sort of definitions. Um, the Cochrane Review, which is like a big database that collates lots of evidence altogether. Um, interestingly, and I thought was really nice, focus on what women identify as their onset of labour. So they said women identify onset of labour from various signs, including painful contractions, a blood-stained mucousy vaginal loss, which would be your show, Mm. um, and then may seek advice from healthcare professionals about progress of their labour and for reassurance at this stage. So I thought it was kind of nice that, because I think sometimes those black and white definitions can isolate a lot of people in feeling like well it feels like to me I'm in labour but you're in that long latent phase and someone maybe perhaps is telling you at a clinic visit or on a phone call you're not in labour try again later kind of thing and it can feel a little disheartening computer says no (coughs) excuse me Um, but they also do emphasise that research and evidence would suggest to stay at home for as long as possible because even though they would feel individually that their onset of labour has begun, that this is not an established labour. So that's another term you'll see along with your stages and your phases, whether your labour is established or not. And that's kind of another way of the differentiation between that latent and active. Yeah, very much. um, The longer that a woman can can labour at home, the less likely they are to be interfered with inter, in, yeah. you know and experience and like a lot of evidence to suggest that mm. um, and then our NICE guidelines which we've talked about in previous episodes um, kind of go along that same like first stage second stage with latent and mm-hmm. that kind of thing so physiologically what's happening to your body weirdly as I was researching for this episode the Encyclopedia Britannica if anyone's looking for some information, <laughs> has some really good information about hashtag bomb. You'd hope so. Yeah, I was quite surprised. Yeah, she's saying this with her little Encyclopedia Britannica cap on. She's actually. Oh, that just made me think of Glow. 
Oh, yeah. Oh. Love glow. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm smart and stuff. <laughs> um, so basically, nobody really knows why or exactly when you go into labour. What mm-hmm. is it that makes the exact kind of pinpoint of, is it a release of hormone? Is it a timing thing that your placenta stops functioning in a certain way and that triggers a cascade of hormones it's thought to be a kind of combination of biochemical things which would be like fetal hormones so your oxytocin um, and placental inflammatory responses yes so that's kind of when your placenta would possibly be signaling your body that it's coming to the end of its functional life and then that can trigger some kind of a cascade that then puts you into labour. There's also hormones called prostaglandins produced by the placenta um, that factor into the start of your labour. Isn't it amazing though that it is 2019 and we don't know? I think it's deadly. I I think it's so amazing. Um, Although sometimes (laughs) I'm sure you guys are the same where you meet women and they've been in the clinic and then they say no the doctor told me I'd be in labour in the next three days yeah (laughs) (laughs) and I'm I'm having my baby today because the doctor said so yeah and uh -uh. and you just kind of think where's that crystal ball I know because you know we could all start making a whole lot of money from that crystal ball if we did know yes 100% you know um, wouldn't it be great but anyway, yeah. My favourite is, well, obviously couples ask all the time, so what time will the baby be here at? <laughs> yeah. Like, and I, I love when you can't give them an answer. They're like, yeah, but like, will it no, be here before? Do you think it'll be here before six o'clock though? <laughs> just I like I want to tell but my But if mom. you had to guess, if you had to give me a time yeah. though. One day I just <laughs> I went, <know>. half six. <laughs> it's because we live in a world where like we have instant yeah. gratification on everything. Yeah, we just we're just conditioned into. It's like the last thing we were saying, like, oh, you love a scan. It's because we live in such a visual world. Yeah, you and we want kind of access to every every angle thing. of everything. Yeah, yeah, you totally. I like the spontaneity of it all. Yeah, I kind of like. I mean, I'm sure I won't one day when I'm forty-one weeks and three days pregnant. <laughs> and I'm like, someone tell me when this baby's getting out of me. But. Yeah. Until then. Yeah. Um, the other thing that they think has some sort of an involvement is a fetal lung protein called surfactant protein A, which um, research has shown us that it doesn't start to be produced until the late stages of gestation. There is usually a surge of surfactant around 37 weeks, mm-hmm. which is really good for preparing your baby's lungs for breathing outside of the uterus. And so they think that this trigger of surfactant and then again a release of surfactant around your term, your 39, 40 weeks, in some way interacts with placental hormones um, and fetal hormones like oxytocin to all meld together Mm. in some mad thing that gets your body Mm -hmm. on the road then. So as I said about uterine contractions, the regular rhythmic tightening of your uterine muscle So that's physiologically what's happening is your uterus muscles. Now, I'm going to get technical here and news can correct me. When, I always get this mixed up. When they're contracting, they're shortening. Mm -hmm. And then when they're relaxed, they're lengthening, right? Yeah. But with every contraction, they stay a little bit shorter. Yeah. 
and that muscular shortening is what's pulling, pulling up, pulling up the, yeah. the bottom part of your uterus yeah. and helping then to dilate your cervix. Yeah. I'm doing all these motions with my hands because it makes really sense interesting to, hand, to me in my gestures. head. As the, as the uterus is yeah, tightening and then relaxing, it is, it's effectively, it's absorbing the cervix as the labour like progresses. pulling your so cervix up gets pulled up yes yeah, so it thins out from being like four centimeters long to like as thin as a piece of paper and then when it pulls it all up and gets it all nice and thin then it pulls it open and but as it's pulling the cervix up the fundus or the top of the uterus is also thickening and increasing pressure down there you are onto um that was a lovely explanation lovely there you go i hope that makes sense Oh, I was also doing lots of motions with my hands. I think we should record you doing those and put them in the, put them on our grid. Sure. So as yeah. part of that pressure, that puts pressure on your amniotic sac. Yeah. And then the amniotic sac is pressed down onto your cervix. And then generally speaking, that's what causes your rupture of membranes. Yeah. At some point in the labour. Increasing no, and regular pressure. Yeah. At no guaranteed point. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, like there's lots of people whose waters don't break until just before they have their baby. I've had babies who are born with the waters intact. Yeah. There, there's nothing to say that your waters have to go for you to go into labour. Absolutely. Just. Yeah. yeah. Contrary um, to every film Hollywood movie that has ever yeah, been made with a woman having a baby. Yeah. Where they go in the supermarket and then the baby arrives five minutes later. Yeah. Those ones. Yeah. Um, yeah and yeah so equally if the waters do go early it doesn't necessarily mean that you're in full labour right away but if the waters haven't gone it doesn't mean that you're not in labour yes it sounds so wishy-washy like you'd love to be able to say this is what's going to happen and then you cough three times and the baby comes out and that's it well typically if your waters break before any contractions have started one of the main reasons is because the baby is not in the optimal position yeah so and that doesn't mean that the baby is not going to, you know, get into the best position for labour to start. But that is one of the main reasons. Yeah, that's when you get the happens. back labour. That's when you get the back labour, when the yeah. baby's lying back to back. Yeah. So I've talked a little bit about show. Again, same kind of thing with your waters. Don't necessarily have to have a show yeah. to know that you're that's kind of happening it's a mucusy plug that's in your cervix that when all of these kind of earlier contractions are happening you can your cervix can kind of loosen and it releases this little mucusy plug yep. so that's physiological thing number one physiological thing number two your contractions and what they're doing to your body physiological thing number three your water is breaking yep. absolutely that's great, great. Yeah. yeah thank you those are the things to to look out for um, cool. and then I know there's loads of people that basically just want the answer of how I can get myself yeah. into labour how do I get what the baby we, we actually haven't have we any written down will we just do a little brainstorm a little brainstorm Let's actually my, brainstorm. My, so my friend oh. sent me a list okay um, that someone had sent to her and she was like I really think you should put this up in the hospital so it says uh, Clary say Doyle sniff and rub on your bump Joyride over the ramps on Bunting Routes for any of the Dublin 12 people. Uh, <laughs> eat the hottest curry you can find. Go to a cinema with surround sound. Run up and down stairs. Brackets, be careful. Squats, twerks, raspberry leaf tea and eat a ton of pineapple. <laughs> so now, I was like, on. they're covering a Are lot of stuff Are you running up and down there. the stairs in the cinema? 
I was thinking, <laughs> I, I think you go to like a 4D film experience oh and God. just, no, I don't know, like I... Um, okay. I did run send, up any stairs. I did send a friend of mine a text message when she was asking about how to get herself into labour, which I think went along the lines of if you've had a clinic appointment and had a sweep, mm. go home if you're willing to masturbate. Yeah. Have a really nice warm bath, play with your nipples, masturbate some more, <laughs> try and get your husband to have sex with you. I'm going to be graphic as deep as possible. Make sure he ejaculates <laughs> and leave it in there for as long as you can. The sperm, that is. Because there's not necessarily good evidence behind that, but there's prostaglandins in sperm. So they say. So they think that there's some mm. science behind it, not necessarily a swathe of research proven stuff to say that it definitely will yeah. get you into labour. Yeah. And that's what a lot of those things, there's n- no it's discernible, anecdotal. like it's definite it's And there's, there's more of them. Um, there's more of them as well. For me, the whole sex leading up to labour thing is is more I think about the oxytocin, it's oxytocin. Yes. that's the main well, that's why I say nipple stimulation and masturbation because if yeah. you're aroused yeah. and having an orgasm you're yeah. definitely producing oxytocin yeah, yeah. whereas I think sometimes if you're having sex with your I partner I think people think it's just get that in there yeah no I think if you're well if you're broke. having like typical penis in vagina sex with your partner at 41 weeks pregnant you're maybe not necessarily having an orgasm yeah yeah exactly um, but the orgasm is, well, yes, but the orgasm <laughs> is important for the oxytocin exactly. and the little kind of contractions of yeah. your uterus. Yeah. So for me, it's I, I I always say it's more about the intimacy. Mm. If you just feel yeah. like kissing, if you just you know, if he wants to, kissing if, is supposed you, to be really helpful. If your partner wants to give you a massage, you know those kind of things. I said he there, which is really heteronormative, and I'm really sorry. God, we do Tara. not. That's okay. We know you were just thinking of Kev. We do not automatically <laughs> <laughs> assume that all of the pregnant people. That's why I always tell them have to master partners. partners as well because yeah, yeah. Just maybe get you the don't job have done. a partner. Just get the job done. <laughs> 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 yeah, anyway, yeah. That being said, I think probably I don't know. Maybe you'll disagree with me. None of us. I, I wouldn't advise you to be having sex. Penis or vagina with your partner if your waters no, have broken. No, if your waters have yeah, broken, no, then no, no, no. Or I, if I wouldn't be inserting anything into the vagina, to be honest, if the waters are broken. No. I mean, you could and also it would insert be a really like, clean sex toy if you wanted to. It but would be a fairy... Unadvisable. Oh, I wouldn't I wouldn't advise it. But, I wouldn't advise it either. You know, yeah. people can make up their own minds, Pe- but, yeah. but I, it's not what I would encourage, not post-waters broken. So and I think having sex with your waters gone, apart from the fact that there is an infection risk, from an actual logistical, like you'd want to be doing a kind of a bin liners on the bed. A hundred percent. It would be a slip and slide in the shower. <laughs> no, I'm not advocating for this. I'm joking. I wouldn't advise it at all. Yeah. Leave your bits alone if your waters have gone. Yeah. What I mean, like you can do clitoral <laughs> stimulation. Like there's nothing yeah. to stop you from doing that. With a clean hand. With Maybe clean not hand. like lick outs. No. No, but each of their I own. can vouch for the fact that amniotic fluid does not taste very nice. Because <laughs> one time I was at an emergency cesarean section as the midwife catching the baby, and the doctor flung the baby at me in a certain way, and the baby's arm went into my mouth, and I got amniotic fluid in there, and it tasted yuck. Wow, that's hardcore. Yeah, lesson to myself: 
even in emergency situations, always take time to put on your surgical mask. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, there's nothing to to stop you doing nipple stimulation, clitoral yeah. stimulation, lots of kissing. So and the things no, that there no, are some no. small studies for helping naturally induce labour are walking more and staying upright Mm -hmm. because gravity helps bring your baby's head down a little bit and put pressure on your cervix which then supports the release of prostaglandins which then triggers off all your contractions and stuff. Some small studies to um, suggest that eating dates Mm -hmm. for a few weeks before your due date may encourage your cervix to soften so that yeah, it shortens and the first work, stage of labour. It shortens the first stage. Uh, <clears throat> eating dates wakes up the hormone receptors in the uterus so that when a spontaneous labour begins, those hormone receptors are really ready to go. Yeah. And it makes it more effective. Okay. And um, uh, yeah, I was going to bring some dates in for you guys here because they're a great thing to eat in labour as well. Really good energy. Really good energy. Good but energy. just to be aware that you want to be eating six dates a day for a few weeks before your due date. Oh yeah. I'd and I always say to people, I would suggest energy, little energy balls you can make at home with dates yeah. um, are really good. Um, or one of my more favourite snacks, which is dates with almond butter, salted or almond butter, butter. Yeah, mm. delicious. on them. So yummy. Um, some studies to suggest drinking raspberry leaf tea or taking a raspberry leaf supplement in tablet form. Mm-hmm. Um, Orally. Yes, orally, <laughs> um, which you can start at around 32 weeks pregnant um, with one cup a day, one cup a day, <laughs> cup, cup, a cup, tea. Tea, cup a day, a day. <laughs> uh, one cup a day and increase to three cups spread throughout the day. I don't know. Do you think raspberry leaf tea? It's one of those old school ones, yeah. you know, I and know like, lots of people who yeah, had it. Yeah. It's um, no harm. Like. It's no harm. Although I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I, I, um, I would actively advise against drinking it early in pregnancy. Yeah, I mean, I, um, it doesn't make sense to me that you would be drinking it if you wanted to, you know what I mean? It's supposed to. I would to, say to wait till your term. Yeah, or even to, even kind of 36 30, weeks. Yeah. It's supposed to tone the uterus because um, I know I've met women who are going through fertility treatment and they are also drinking raspberry leaf tea because it's supposed to help tone the uterus and... I don't know. Wake it up a bit. I don't know. Okay. Um, but some, yeah, the dates for sure. Yeah. And acupuncture. Yeah, some scientific evidence to suggest that acupuncture can induce your labour naturally. Mm-hmm. But not, I suppose, when we're talking about evidence, we're looking at how, like a big, huge body of evidence to say, absolutely, that works. Yeah. So these, all of these are like small studies. Yeah. Or anecdotal. But anecdotal, like we were talking about this before we started recording and anecdotally I do feel that acupuncture and acupressure Absolutely. are really good and it's uh, same with reflexology as well I've seen a lot yeah. of people who've come in so these also will be people who would potentially have been getting these therapies, you know, therapies throughout, their throughout their pregnancy um, but there's people who specialise in, in acupuncture and acupressure for pregnancy mm. and specifically for bringing on labour and I definitely it will be something whenever I have a baby that I would definitely be doing. I went to I thought you said there, I have a baby. I was like, <laughs> what? I, I, it's in um, the car park. <laughs> I had acupuncture throughout. Um, you loved it, didn't both you? Both my pregnancies. I loved it, yeah. I had it uh, mostly for anxiety, actually, to calm my anxiety. And I found it mm. really useful. Um, and especially in my second pregnancy, I would have been in a in a very bad place had I not had acupuncture. I had it 
pretty much every week from the time I was 24 weeks. Mm. And I know that that is um, a privileged position to be in because like everything you have I to know. pay for it. I know, know and that's the thing. And I feel bad recommending something um, sometimes when you're like not everybody can yeah. Yeah. have um, it. And I know that I was lucky to, to get that. And I've had the same acupuncturist for many years. Hello, Anna. <laughs> um, and she's fantastic. Um and yeah, no, I loved it. I think it's great. And um, a home birth midwife that we all know uh, came to see me in my house. Nanny. Nanny. Hi, Nanny. Hi, I Nanny. Think she Hi, Nanny. Yeah. Um, Nanny, maybe you'll come in and chat to us one day. Oh, that would um, be brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> um, she came to see me in my house after my waters had gone on my first labour and came and did acupuncture at home for me. Amazing. Uh, which, was, which was great. Really helpful. Yeah. And she... Um, Gave me this really nice oil and yeah, it was really, it was really nice. Yeah, it was great. So lastly, the food things. Mm-hmm. Eating spicy curry. Yeah. So the science behind this is that it would irritate or stimulate your bowel and that your bowel being close to your pregnant uterus would also then kind of irritate your uterus muscle to kind of get going. In the same way that the uh, castor oil. Yeah. And I suppose... I think now a lot of people will be saying castor oil has gone out the, the yeah. door. There are definitely places in terms that they of still recommend it. Yeesh. Only post term. I would never. I don't. I don't actively recommend it anyway. But and I think pineapple can be a little bit similar. That if you eat a shit ton of pineapple, it's gonna <laughs> stimulate your bowel. Yeah. But there is actually also an enzyme called bromelain in pineapple oh. that is thought to soften the cervix. But again, not similarly to the dates, but you would need to be eating apparently like twelve whole pineapples it, to get enough of that enzyme the, for it to do the job. Yeah, the bromelain is concentrated in the core of the pineapple, and to the get it, you don't want to eat. To get a decent dose, you need to eat at least three pineapples at a time. The core, at a time, the core. <laughs> Three yeah, pineapples like, at a time. Which you don't want to do. I mean, the acid reflux yeah. involved. And, and the shits. Yeah. <laughs> like, at the end of pregnancy and eating that volume of I suppose that's like pineapple. a risk-reward kind of thing. Like, exactly. you might get yourself into labour, but it might also be firing fucking shit at your midwife. <laughs> <laughs> Roshi didn't have her mask on that day. Yeah. <laughs> We would say there's loads of things you can try. None of them are a guarantee, but the ones that we've discussed here aren't of any harm, provided your waters aren't gone mm. and that you haven't been told by a midwife or a doctor, don't do don't. X. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So always nice to have a little try. They're ni- I think as well, they're actually nice little distracting. Yeah, absolutely. And if it makes you feel better that you feel like you're doing something. But equally, if you don't do any of these things, it don't worry about it. Yeah, and baby's going to come one way or the other. And yeah. you're going to have people saying, what are you doing to get yourself into labour? Oh, people will drive you crazy. And people will drive you, you know, and, you know, I think that's the worst thing. And also, so if you're listening to this and you have pregnant friends, don't ask them. No. Is there what, any baby news? Because you'll your hear. Yet. Yeah. Because you're going to hear when yeah. your friend or once relative you, has their baby. Once you get past that due date, those, those messages start racking up. Hey, any news? <laughs> hey, any news? Hey. Or um, I love the news? like the trying any to be news? subtle one like, hey, how are you? Yeah. Just checking <laughs> in. Question mark, question mark, Just question mark. Just checking in, any news? I Pink know. Pregnant emoji. I know. <laughs> and it's really hard because obviously people care and people are excited. But 
Yeah. You know. If you think of that times a hundred, if you yeah if you're sending that message and so is loads of other like so are loads of other people. Yeah. 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 So just think, am I being helpful? Exactly. Yeah. How, and how can I how be helpful? How can I be helpful? Exactly. So um that's my spiel on what labour is and Amazing. what's kinda of happening and how you can help yourself. Amy's gonna tell us what happens when you phone her. Yes. So um, so as Roisin discussed, um, we're not really entirely sure what starts labour or what will start labour. Um, but typically speaking, so I suppose it's different if it's your first baby. The advice I would give people if they're ringing in or coming in. I, so I work in an assessment unit where we assess people coming in in labour and we also give advice on the phone. So advice for first baby versus second, third fourth mm. babies obviously is different. So if it's your first baby, what we would say is um, if you're happy with the movements that day, if you are having strong, regular, intense contractions. So the main thing that we would be looking for would be a pattern of contractions. So initially when it starts, you could have one contraction and um, then maybe 10 minutes later you have another then maybe you'll have another couple, kind of two minutes, then another one two minutes later, then seven minutes. So we would call those irregular contractions. So what you want is to start noticing a pattern. Um, I think in your hospital antenatal classes, we would typically tell women when you're having contraction lasting for one minute every five minutes for one hour, yeah. To start thinking about coming in. Yeah. So we would or even, even say. Even more frequent. Depending yeah, on where we, they live. that's the thing. It depends on where you live. So I think once you kind of get to that five minute mark, you can start thinking potentially you'll be ready to come in in the next couple of hours. I mean, realistically, your contractions need to be coming every three minutes, we would say, you know, for you to actually be in labour. And that would be a couple of hours of you know, strong regular contractions. Um, but again, everybody is a little bit different. So that's kind of just going as a whole, like looking at the large population of people. Um, if it's your second baby um, or third baby, we would say once you start having strong regular contractions, you know, you yeah. would make your way into hospital. We wouldn't be waiting for them to be three minutes apart because things can happen a little bit quicker. And why is that, Amy? Physiologically. <laughs> Physiologically. So in your first baby, your cervix needs to fully thin out before it starts dilating. And then other babies, it happens at the same time. So your cervix effaces and dilates at the same time. So it's much quicker. Um, so if the th when you need to come into hospital, if your waters have gone, you need to go into the hospital. So every unit will be different and policies differ from place to place so you'll be informed of this at your antenatal classes but typically speaking everywhere if your waters go they would like you to go in and be assessed so they would do a CTG a tracing of baby they would sometimes need to do a speculum to have a look um, so they want to know you have a little acronym don't you yeah if your waters go don't forget your coat so C for colour so what colour is the fluid so generally speaking it's like a clear to a pale yellow um, it might be a bit pink um, but certainly if it was green or brown you know we'd get you to come in quick enough um, so C O and then O is odour so does it smell kind of sweet does it smell kind of alkaline or is there a foul smell um, A 
is activity. So what's the baby's activity? Is the baby moving at their usual busy times? Is this a quiet time for the baby? And are they quiet as normal? that you would you would expect and we spoke about the kind of pattern of movements in the last episode and then t is time what time do the waters break because inevitably your midwife will ask you what time the waters went and i think it's really important to say that for the vast vast majority of people like waters breaking is not a reason to call an ambulance yeah um it is a normal event in your labour and leading up to the birth of your baby. Yeah, I think a lot of people like panic that they're going to have to baby right now. Yeah, absolutely. You've got yeah. time. And, and that is like normal. Un- yeah, and, and certainly if, you, if you're not sure of immediately what to do, <coughs> then call your midwife in, in the assessment unit and they can advise you. They'll ask you all those questions, all those points that I was just talking about. And then, you know, they'll assess based on that. But, you know, typically if all is well, if you're feeling well, if the waters are clear, have a shower you know, get yourself together and make your way in. Um, or, you know, obviously you don't have to have a shower if you don't want to. But for some people, it's a big gush and the, and the fluid is everywhere. And for other people, it's a small trickle and it's much more manageable. It's much more known. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I suppose we won't go too much into specifics because it yeah. really differs. Even we work in two different hospitals and even what we do in between our two hospitals are very different. Yeah. So we won't go too much into it except to say that um, typically speaking, one, if labour doesn't start itself, your hospital will be offering you an induction. Yeah. Um, if everything is normal and there's no signs of infection, so typically one of the big things is group B strep. Um, again, every hospital has a different policy, but usually within 24 hours, the hospital will be suggesting that you are induced. Mm. Um, and that's obviously just to prevent infection for you and your baby. So that's something that you should be aware of, but also just if the waters go, you do need to make your way in. Um, If you come in to hospital and you're not in labour, you're assessed, you're not in labour, if your contractions are irregular, more than likely you will be sent home. So, and that's quite hard for people. A A huge majority of people on their first baby come in and will be sent home because yep. it's too early. And like that's for a number of reasons. The main thing is, is that there's no real, um, people don't have a kind of a, a measure for what yes. labour is. Yeah. So when it starts, it can be intense, it can be a bit overwhelming and you think this has to be it. And then you come in and it's like, you know, look, it's still very early. You go home, you're better off at home, as Roisin was saying. So, um don't be disheartened if you go in and you get sent home. A lot of people do. And then they come back again and they're in labour. Yeah. And what are, like, let's talk about different things like that people can do at home as well. So the main thing you can do is have a relaxing environment. Um, One of the most important things is to have a supportive birth partner. So be that your actual partner, be that a mother, a close friend, um, somebody that you trust. Um, For some people, they may have a doula as well. So a doula is kind of, you know, the job is mothering the mother. That's yeah. the definition, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, so they are a labour support person. Again, when doulas are amazing, but unfortunately not available to everybody. It is a paid service. Yeah. Um, but if you feel that that's something that you like. The sound of, yeah. Yeah, and there's lots of really, really good doulas in Ireland. Yeah. Um, so we would say kind of darkened room, kind of set like a romantic kind of, you want it to be something. Yeah, yeah. It's you like, like where, you feel, like where you feel like chill and yeah. kind of well taken care of, I think. I always... Yeah. It's really important. 
um, making sure that you have regular snacks, that you're well hydrated. Um, and another thing, so we were talking, it's this really cool thing uh, called Labour Hopscotch. Mm-hmm. So um, you can find it if you Google it online. A midwife, I think she's in Hollis Street, isn't she? Is, she? Yeah. Um, she came up with it. So it's basically just, I won't go through it, but it's all these different things that you can do. So you do each thing for 20 minutes and it's just to like, so 20 minutes of mobilizing, 20 minutes of sitting on the toilet, 20 minutes of what else is there being on a birthing ball. So you just keep doing something different. Yeah, because in early labor, nothing will particularly necessarily satisfy you for a very long time. And sometimes you can have like your mind can go blank. So it's good to have the labour hopscotch there with suggestions of things that you can do for 20 minutes at a time to help you pass the time, help to distract you, help you cope with the discomfort. Um, And yeah, and any like any, um, you know, positions that you might do and stuff. I always encourage people to do them antenatally because if you are mm. not thinking about th- these things before you ever go into labour, you definitely won't think of them you when you're in labour. You won't come up with them then, no. You won't. They have to come naturally to you. You have to have them in your, in your like, yeah, toolbox I was just gonna say, of ideas. Like some of it, I think, is a little bit instinctual as well. Like it's yeah. great to have the labour hopscotch there to say, try moving around, try this, try that. But for some people, when that kind of labour takes over they instinctually know like I have to lie down now or I have to be on all fours now or I have to have a bath or a shower now yeah so like kind of listening to your body body and your instincts and and just doing what's going to make you feel comfortable and yeah it's comfort and distraction I think is the key for your early labour so if it's a non um pharmacological pain relief um, which can be used at home so I mean one of the most helpful things you can do for yourself in early labour is be in water so be it a bath or a shower so you don't want to have water that's too hot um, but you want to have like a kind of a decent you know mm-hmm. no kind of little hat like it's meant to be covering the bump yeah. um, and you can either be sitting in the bath or else you can equally kind of be on all fours with your bump yeah. in the water and yeah. what I say to in the shower in the shower yeah. yeah and what I say to women if you're struggling to obviously with whatever size of bath you have get water up over your bump get a towel and dip it in the bath water and cover your bump in the warm oh, towel lovely, yeah. and keep refreshing it in your bath water so your whole bump is nice and oh, warm. Oh, that's, re- that's really good. Yeah. Um, so water would be the main thing we would recommend. Um, so TENS machine, so that stands for transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation. So these are little electrodes that you put on your back and it's operated with a little kind of handheld pack. Um, so it passes a gentle electrical current through these flat pads which are on your back um, and it's kind of typically used in early labour. That's kind of when it's, I think all of the research is mostly around then. Um, so the electrical current stimulates the body pro- to produce endorphins um, and endorphins are your body's natural painkillers. So I think a lot of women, I meet a lot of women who find it really good. Yeah, yeah. really, um, really good. Useful. Really helpful. And if, and it's again, it's another kind of thing. It's a distraction thing because you're, when you get a contraction, you can kind of increase um, the power, you can surge. It's something that your partner can help you with. Uh, so it's really good. Um, and another thing as well is hypnobirthing. So hypnobirthing is becoming 
kind of quite mainstream now. Um, some hospitals offer it as part of their antenatal package. Um, you can get a book, you can get a DVD, you can go to hypnobirthing classes, you can get a private instructor, you can kind of do it yourself, although it is better to have instruction. An instru- it's better to have an instruction instructor. Um and also it's your partner. It's kind of crucial that whoever's yeah. going to be your birthing your main support person and neighbor goes to this with you. There are online courses as well. Okay. Because brilliant. the face-to-face courses can be expensive. Okay, but so you can do online. It, you can do it on. Okay. Yeah. So, um the basic premise of hypnobirthing is to remove fear. So it kind of operates on the principle if you are anxious, if you're fearful, your adrenaline rises and adrenaline suppresses um, your oxytocin production, which then hampers your contractions. So if you are fear free and relaxed, you're more likely to labor effectively and um, be in control. Mm-hmm. So um, I think hypnobirthing is brilliant. Yeah, I think it's great. I think it should be said, like we're saying hypnobirthing. Hypnobirthing is actually a uh, it's an umbrella term. It's an umbrella. T- well, I, I mean, I suppose it should be really hypnosis and labour because hypnobirthing is a brand. There are yeah. other brands yeah. as well. Self-hypnosis like, There are other empires kind of, you know, yeah. who are all kind of essentially saying the same They are all thing. sending the same message. Yeah. yeah. They've, they've, they brand it differently. They Affirmations. Offer it in different ways. Yeah. Control. Yeah. Kind of education. like mindful meditative techniques to get you through your labour. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, and that yeah. can be hypnobirthing and both of those. So hypnobirthing and your tens can be used the whole way through. Yeah. And you were talking about affirmations. I was saying to you about oh, yes. there's the really nice affirmation cards that you can get from a woman called Yes Mom. Um, so there are really nice ones like for pregnancy and birth. Um, and like that, it's a pack of, I think it's 32 little cards. And you just take one out each day and you leave it in a prominent place throughout your pregnancy. And that, so you see it a couple of times a day and it's like you know, my body and my baby are working as a team, you know, things like that. Did you have these? I had these, yeah, Yeah. and I just forgot to bring them today, I'm sorry. Um, But yeah, like really nice little cards that just remind you that you are on this journey together with your baby, that you're Mm. on the right path, that you're doing doing the right thing, just to help kind of empower you in it. Um, But she also does really nice ones for, she does them for kids, she does them for teenagers, she does them for changing job, preparing for exams, you know, all these, these kind of things. And they're really, really nice. I think they're they're not particularly expensive. I think you expensive. recommended them to my friends, didn't you? I think you recommended them to one of my friends and she really liked them. Yeah. Now that you're saying it, it all sounds familiar. There you go. Um, but anyway, yeah, so they are, I, they're really nice. I think as well, the hypnobirthing and those affirmation tools can be really helpful if you end up experiencing some complications of your labour. Yeah. They can be really good for kind of centering you and keeping you calm at that time. Yeah. So yeah. would very strongly advise them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because I think some people do have a fear that when you're preparing for labour in a way like with hypnobirthing and all this kind of thing and you know maybe writing a list of birth preferences um, or a birth plan oh what if my, my plan's going to go out the window you know oh well sure you know I didn't want an epidural and now, I, now I've got an epidural and sure my plan's gone out the window and I've failed but it's very much like I always prefer birth preferences. I don't know, are you guys the same? You know, where you kind of think, mm. you know, let's look at these choices that you've made and the thought, the things that you've been thinking of and let's, you know, facilitate as many of these as possible and as best we can. And then, you know, there's no element of, nobody's failing. 
No, absolutely you know, not. No. Um, but I, I have... I think think of it similarly to kind of the labour hopscotch. Yeah. yeah. Like you need a a plan or preferences that will get you through to your end point yeah. regardless. Yeah. Because you can't guarantee that your labour is going to be a certain length of time and you can't predict what your pain tolerance is going to be or mm. how tired you're going to be or, mm. yeah. you know, some people are really, really nauseated and vomiting in their labour and how that dehydration might affect you. Yeah. Some people experience their contractions in different, like a lot to the front, a lot to the back, like down their legs, down their legs and yeah. you're not necessarily always anticipating every eventuality of your labour. Yeah. So having kind of that like step by step I know that in my early labour up until a certain point I want to do X yeah. thing. I think what I've seen really recently which has been really nice is women writing on their preferences that they've kind of done their research and that they will ask for the next level of yeah. pain relief when yeah. they feel they need it. Yeah. Um, so I think it's important you're not setting like <laughs> your birth preferences aren't setting a rigid this is how my labour and birth are mm, definitely going, going to, to go. go. Yeah. It's writing down and really thinking about ways of coping throughout your whole yeah. experience. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose for me, certainly my advice to people would be nothing should ever be completely off the table because you don't know what you're going to need yeah. at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think they serve as a reminder both for you and of your partner of all the preparation mm. that you have done because you, you forget things in the heat of the moment. Like you're very excited, you're very emotional. And things just go out of your head, you know, like you, yeah. you just you can't remember all the things that you've prepared. So having that kind of list there just just gives a little a little trigger mm, as well. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that brings us. Of, yeah. So that brings us, I suppose. So you come in. So most hospitals have a similar definition of what constitutes being in active labour. So it's three centimetres. Um, yep. and your cervix is thinned out. In some hospitals, it may be four to get into mm. the labour ward, is it? Yeah. yeah and well, it's... and it's. Sorry, I was going to... No, like no, it. you're fine. Like, it's kind of a combination, isn't it's it? It's a combination. Of like where the cervix is at, where, where is where the, the head is head, at, it, how yeah. regular your contractions exactly. are. Exactly. There's a, there's a whole picture. It's not clear cut. Um, and people get very um, hung up on centimetres. Yes. And you could be you know, six or seven centimetres, but if your baby's head is high... Yeah. Your labour's you know, still going to take some time. Your labour is going to take time for the baby's head to come down, you know, so it's... And hopefully, I suppose you just need to... Things you need to think of is, is my cervix thinned out or effaced? Where is my baby's head? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, yeah, how often are the... How often are, are my contractions? contractions? Yeah. So once you have... So you come into the assessment unit, so you're deemed either in labour or let's wait a little bit longer. Um, you know, it, it is important to note that if you're not in labour and you feel that you aren't coping, mm. you can be admitted yeah. for pain relief. You know, so... Yeah. And for some people, it can take a very long time. You can be exhausted mm. and you could be having really, really strong and regular contractions. You're not necessarily ready for the labour ward, but there potentially could be other things we could give you. Yeah. Namely... Pethidine. Pethidine, yeah. Which Tara is going to discuss in a little while. <laughs> um, so if you are, so once you're deemed in labour, you go to the labour ward. Yeah. Da, 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 da. Over to you, Roisin. I mean, 
hopefully you go to the labour ward. Obviously, there can be times when you don't necessarily go to the labour ward. But if everything's running smoothly. Yeah, let's just go there with this. Well, for no, this like episode, everything's know running you smoothly. can be in labour, <laughs> but yeah. they send you to the early labour ward if, say, the baby's head is high to give you a bit of time. No. No. Um, like if you're... I think if things are progressing. Yeah. I mean, it depends. Like, I suppose we're kind of getting into a bit of a... Typically speaking, if you're in labour and there is a bed for you in the labour ward, you will go to the labour yeah. ward. Okay. Just to, uh, just to, uh, what's the word? Prefix is the wrong word because you said it, but I was going to say just in brackets, you do not have to labour on a bed. Very true. <laughs> what did I say? If there's a bed for you in the labour ward. Oh yeah, well if there's a room for you. <laughs> yeah. If there's a room for you. You know, um, um, isn't it Sarah Wickham who always says push the bed to the side? I know it's not necessarily uh, possible in the layout, <laughs> yeah. uh, but there is that, you know, that theory of like, why is the bed in the centre of the room? So <laughs> we're going down a rabbit hole here now. We've gone down several <laughs> rabbit holes. There's a lot of kind of stolen glances like across the room. <laughs> When you get to the labour ward. When you get when to you the labour ward. There we go. So basically the kind of best evidence-based practice rigmarole would suggest that you have one-to-one care by mm-hmm. a midwife in your labour. So you should expect to have a named midwife in the labour room with you who is going to be looking after you for the duration of your labour. It's probably a discussion for another day as to whether there is a room available for you on the labour ward, whether you go there at a certain time. <laughs> yes. Um, and whether there is we- a one Whether one there is one, one specific midwife yeah, available to look after you. That is a whole other episode. But that is the... That that's what that's, we're aiming for as the kind of the gold, gold standard. standard. Yeah. Yeah. That's what you should expect. Um, and in lots of units around Ireland, you yeah, are I getting think, yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. the majority of the time that's achieved. Yes. Um, like sometimes there can be a wait to get to the labour ward. Sometimes there can be, you know, uh, you start your labour with one midwife, you end up with another midwife. Or there you can could be have a student Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but generally speaking, the recommendation from all of the evidence that we, you would have one-to-one care. The other then would be kind of mirroring what Amy said about your home environment is to try and keep that space as calm and relaxing and as nurturing as possible. So for in my experience, that would be kind of keeping lights as dim as possible, depending on what's going on in the room and what needs to be done. Um, you can bring music into your labour room. You can bring aromatherapy. Um, some units will supply some aromatherapy for you. Um, you can bring like, I've seen couples bring in like little battery powered kind of fairy lights yeah. to kind of set the mm. mood. You or can the little bring fake candles. Little fake candles. Yeah. yeah. You can bring No flame. No open flame. Well no open flame. You'll be asked not to light real <laughs> candles because there is yeah. medical gas and air supply into the room that can explode. So we don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> um you can bring your <laughs> affirmation cards here, you folks. can put them up on the wall if you want to yeah. you can kind of what we say is create your little nest yeah. so make yourself feel as at home as you possibly can given that you're now in a clinical environment because that promotes the production of your hormones that keep your labour going 
what you can typically expect when you come into a labour room depending on what assessments you've had done in the emergency assessment unit is more monitoring of your baby um subsequent vaginal examinations so when you come in to be assessed for your labour you can typically expect to have a vaginal examination to say how many centimetres you are yeah and you could typically expect to have electronic monitoring of your baby's heartbeat or what we would call an admission CTG. Now, there is evidence to say... Yeah, they're not... Uh, currently, admission not CTGs routine. are not routine in all units. But... But they happen, I think, in the I vast think they majority. can be quite habitual in practice, even though maybe the evidence would suggest that they're not incredibly beneficial and that we can uh, ascertain your baby's well-being by just listening in and what we mean when we say listening in is that we would listen to your baby's heartbeat with a pinard or a doppler for one minute and that kind of lets us assess what your baby's heartbeat is doing during your labour and we would like to try and listen into that after a contraction has happened every 15 minutes and then that uh level or not level what's the word frequency of monitoring increases as your labor progresses yeah so in the next episode we'll talk about what's happening in your second stage of labor how your monitoring increases some um people with different um kind of mitigating health factors or things that they know already about your baby maybe if you're diabetic or have had blood pressure issues in pregnancy um or if they think that your baby's growth is different um or if they see meconium in your waters you will be on um continuous electronic monitoring of your baby through your labor so when you arrive to the labor ward um the midwife who's looking after you will help you get settled to your room and when you're ready she'll ask to connect you back up to an electronic monitor and that will stay on you for the duration of your labour. At that point, if you're getting an epidural for pain relief, um, the uh, evidence and advice from us would be that you would also have continuous electronic fetal monitoring. Um, As much as possible, we would love for this to be as mobile as possible to keep you moving in your labour but it can be challenging because well certainly in the unit that I work in we have wall mounted electronic monitoring units Mm. and the wiring for that is can be limiting yeah so just that it can restrict your movement to one area of the room unfortunately yeah some units do have um telemetry they have the wireless isn't it yeah Yeah. so they can move so you can move but equally I mean even when you are tethered you know, uh, there are birthing balls available. Yeah, absolutely. There are bags available. And like um, we said, we can move things around in the room can, so that, yeah. that we create that space, as yeah. much space as possible for you to stay as upright yeah. and mobile as possible. That being said, we will let you know if the monitoring is being interfered with because of certain positions or movement. Yeah. And we'll ask you if we can kind of fiddle around with things a little bit or if we could suggest a different position that might work as comfortably for you and make it able for us to keep an eye on your baby as well. Um, so that's kind of getting set up. And then you're kind of looking, Tara, are you talking to us about pain management in the labour room? Um, yeah, so... Um Amy mentioned pethidine, so I'll just mention it again, just that it is a drug that we use in early labour in particular. Um, Certainly in Ireland, we don't, in many units, we wouldn't use it in established labour. So I'm sorry, now we're kind of slightly going backwards because we're going back Mm. to early labour. But um, it's an injection pain relief made from morphine um, that generally takes the edge off the 
um, pain and helps people feel a little bit sleepy. Um, and typically women who receive pethidine get a couple of hours sleep. So we would usually use it in women who are very tired, who are maybe having a slower back labor that their baby is sort of rotating um, and it's taking a while. They have a lot of back pain um, and those women what they need is a couple of hours of a break and some sleep, recharge their batteries and then they're kind of ready to go again. Um, so yeah, typically we would use we would use that in early labour but then once you're in the labour um, room, once you're in your, your, your single room with your midwife, you can continue using your tens the whole time. I think that's really important to know um, unless of course you're, you're in water um, because it's battery operated you're not going to use it <laughs> whether you whether you want to get into the shower for your labor or whether you um have a a pool available to you in your unit for labor or for birth um you you can't use your tens in that but you can keep your tens on the whole time um and then entonox or gas and air is available in all um labor rooms so that's a combination of nitrous oxide and um, oxygen and basically it's piped into the walls you're given either a mouthpiece or a mask um, and you breathe it in in slow deep breaths um, and here's a catchphrase <laughs> for you oh Tara it doesn't take the I pain love a Tara catchphrase it doesn't take the pain away it takes you away from the pain oh very oh. good it kind of gives you an outer body experience Okay. It doesn't. It doesn't agree with everybody. Some people will say, oh, "I get sick on the gas. I can't take the gas. It makes me feel sick. It makes me feel too out of it. Uh, it makes you feel kind of quite drunk." Um, that kind of a. It gives you that sort of outer body experience. For me, it felt like everybody was really far away. Like I was down a well. Like I was like, <laughs> oh. "Hello, hello, hello, hello." <laughs> that was literally the feeling that it gave me and um, over time no over time for me I ended up having a panic attack I don't know was it due to the yeah. gas or not but it wasn't for me it wasn't for me but then I, other people will absolutely love, love it, it. Absolutely. Yeah. exactly this, yeah. and this is the thing like no two things no. work the same for everybody do you know so and maybe I would have had a panic attack anyway and that's to say <laughs> that none of these things are guaranteed to completely no. make you pain free no and I think but I think that in your preparation for labour, you accept that that is okay, and that it that yeah. it's you know it's it's all right to feel something. And I think it's important for us to note that we are kind of presenting these pain relief options. It's kind of with everything you need to read the re- you need to do your own research on it and decide. Like there's pluses and benefits. There's pluses, pros and cons to yeah. all of them. Yeah. Um, pethidine gets very bad rap in Very. lots of circles um, namely one of the big things obviously is that it can have an effect on the baby's respiratory system so potentially it has the potential for the baby to need a bit of extra help when they're born if it's if pethidine is given too close to the time of delivery Yeah. again it's really rare but that is something that people need to know um, there would also be a lot of people who say it impacts the way the baby feeds after it and that the baby's more drowsy again I mean I think that that's something so, that people need to weigh up like you know it's yeah you have to weigh it up yeah in the moment in the moment I think exactly. to be honest um because yeah it does cross the placenta it does make the baby sleepy um pethidine has a long half-life so it takes the baby a while to clear however if you're using it in very early labor yeah the baby will have the vast majority of that pethidine cleared from by the time yeah, by that born. they are born um and it doesn't 
pethidine alone will not stop a baby from breastfeeding. Yes. Um, but if you're aware of it and if you're willing to put in the time, which if you're planning to breastfeed, you are, of course, you're willing to put in the time, you know, to, to rouse your baby to feed and to kind of encourage mm. them to feed. Well, then then you're going to do that anyway. Um, equally, when we talk about um, epidurals, and Amy, you, you'll, you'll tell us how many women, um, you know, or what percentage of women get epidurals. Um, fentanyl, the drug that is used for an epidural, is also an opiate, also crosses the placenta, also impacts on your feeding, as does a long labour, as does getting fluids yes. in your labour. You yeah. know, there are any number of factors. We can't pinpoint one yeah. or the other. And I think that, like you were saying, you cannot plan for every eventuality. You do your spinning babies, you know, you're trying to get the optimal fetal positioning. However, for whatever reason, maybe your baby is more comfortable in a back yeah. position and therefore you have a longer start to your labour and you need to get pethidine. You know, And you can't just... and you shouldn't deny yourself something that you think you need out of a fear of something that maybe you can't control troll anyway absolutely. Yeah. you know absolutely. there's no sense in you being totally distressed and exhausted and in pain in your early labor without a pain relief option in case your baby might not feed yeah. at the end of it yeah yeah you will, absolutely you know, yeah you will be in far worse condition at the end of it if you don't yeah kind of consider yourself eligible for these pain relief options should you need them yeah um, yeah, and they have a not like pain relief has a time and a place, and it's not for everybody. And if you yeah don't want it, but equally it's part of the whole. I suppose when we were talking about breastfeeding week, it's turned in. It's another thing that is turns women yeah. against each other, and yes. you know this kind of people have waged war on people. Do talking about natural childbirth? There's so many articles, you know, and it's kind of seen if you're if you don't want pain relief and you don't use it, then you're somehow seen to be bragging where actually now you're just you're just happy with your own birthing experience. Exactly. It exactly. doesn't mean if one, you know, it, it doesn't make one labour better. Better than the other. Than the there's other. There's room for everybody. Yes. And there's somebody like there we said to about care feeding, for everybody. It has to work for you. Exactly. You have to know what's going to get you through your labour. Yeah. And at the end of your labour, you want to be you know all right and have gotten through it yeah and be ready for that next because it doesn't think things only begin after your labor you have a new little person to yeah, look ab- after absolutely there's so much to do it's not you know i don't mean to say negative it's not like you're gonna just be like labor's done lovely little rest for me like it's a massive transitional period yeah you know yeah. there's a whole nother thing to start yeah absolutely. coping with and body changes to start dealing with that you need to be kind to yourself in your labor and take what's there if and when you need it yeah. and there's no shame or blame in any of that no 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 absolutely not absolutely not yeah and i think yeah you just you just have to you know we just have to keep an open mind yeah um so uh, so then we'll just um, very briefly touch on, because I mentioned it there, epidural. So Amy, what's the percentage? So in Ireland, the most recent figures I could find, 70% of first time mothers. And then that drops to 30% of people on second or subsequent, subsequent pregnancies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which I would believe. I feel that that's really accurate. Yeah. Um, and I suppose the things that people should know about epidurals 
um, generally speaking, mm-hmm. is uh, research would suggest that it's better at relieving pain than opioids. Mm-hmm. Um, that you and your baby will need careful monitoring once you have an epidural and that that can restrict your movement. So that's something to be aware of um, in terms of kind of mobility and positions for your labour. Um, that it is not linked to a longer first stage of labour or an increased chance of having a cesarean section. Mm-hmm. However, it is in- linked to a longer second stage of labour. So the stage of labour where you're pushing your yeah. baby out. And I think probably the... Um, evidence behind that is because maybe you haven't been as upright that your baby hasn't descended into the pelvis as much so you have a little bit more distance to get your to baby out the baby out yeah um, and um, linked to an it is linked to an increased chance of having an instrumental birth so a forceps or a von Tuss birth and that's probably equally linked to the descent of the baby and the length of time pushing and that kind of thing and um although we do i do speak to women who say they've had back pain after epidural for quite a long time evidentially it's not linked to long-term back pain no but that's not to dismiss anyone who is obviously very sure that they've had back pain after an epidural yeah um typically your epidural takes about 30 to 40 minutes to get in and start working from start to finish from start to finish yeah 20 20 to put in and 20 to work I would say yeah around approximately roughly the procedure can take a little bit longer depending on how distressed you are how easy it is to find the exact right space to put it in your back Um, and the anaesthetist who's doing so will talk you through all of that and then they will say once they have the procedure finished how long they would typically expect for you to feel comfortable and what we would say to people getting an epidural is initially what you'll probably find is that your contractions seem to face out no or shorter shorter. is that yeah they I well I guess if they feel shorter then it feels like the gap between them is longer longer. yeah Yeah. (laughs) I think they kind of start I think it's like initially they're like oh that one was a lot shorter but it's still there you know yeah and you can still still be aware of your body having a contraction but it shouldn't be as painful yeah but Ideally, you should feel feel something. Yeah, ideally, like it's it's not a case. You're not meant to be numb from the waist down. From the eyeballs. From the oh yeah, she was pushing out of her eyes. They can (laughs) work more on one side than the other, and that's just the nature of where they're inserted into your back. Um, the the catheter that they thread into your spinal space is flexible, so it can go to the right or to the left, to the to the right or to the left. And obviously, if you're lying more on one side or the other during your yeah. labour, then the medication can go to the to that side, that side yeah. and make that side more numb. And they can, depending on the length of your labour or the effectiveness on the of the drug on your body, they can wear off. So it's not uncommon for you to have had an epidural and for the pain to come back at some stage. But you can have what we call top ups of epidural yep. over the course of your labour, which is a bolus dose of medication that will hopefully then bring you back to that level of much more comfort. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the old epidoodle. Yeah, I, and I think something that women um, that I certainly meet in the classes, what they want to know in terms of an epidural, one, no, you will not see anything and no, your partner will not see anything either. Your partner will be sitting facing you. Oh, for the epidural for going the absolute uh, For the um, actual administration of the epidural. Um, and your partner should not try to walk 
around, around and, and see have it a look. Yeah. because the anaesthetist who's putting it into your back needs a completely sterile field. Yeah. So we don't need other people close to that space possibly yeah. contaminating it. Um, so yeah, so you, you won't see anything and... Um, and your partner won't see anything. And just to know that because your mobility will be reduced post epidural, um, they you'll have a catheter, a urinary catheter placed yeah. um, in the vast majority of units. If you speak to older midwives and they say, oh, we used to get women out onto a bedpan every two hours. Um, I mean, now that the, the technically speaking, the dosage of epidural that we use in pregnant people. Yeah. They would have previously called it a walking, a walking epidural, epidural that yeah. you should be able to walk with it. But safety wise, yeah. some people like actually can't lift their legs off the bed to yeah. take the chance of mobilizing you in your labor is a little bit risky. I think most yeah. people and would say from talking to people who work in various units around the country, I think standard practice generally you're going to be in bed after you've had your epidural and you have a, a urinary catheter um placed for the duration of your labour um, also because we don't want your bladder filling up and not being emptied and risking a potential injury to you um, or obstructing your labour if it gets in the way of your baby coming down um, so there are obviously with everything there are people who won't be eligible they won't be able to have an epidural but that mm-hmm. would typically you won't be finding that out when you get to the lay board. You will already have been assessed antenatally. You would hope so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in that case, there other pain relief. Like there's another thing called remifentanil, mm. um, which is set up by an anaesthetist. So that is another form of kind of strong pain relief that people can have. Mm. So there are options available. But yeah. just, you know, because I'm sure there'll be people there, like people who've had certain back surgeries yeah. and other medical problems. Yeah. Can't have it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, particularly I would I would always say to women, if you are concerned that you are somebody who mightn't be eligible for an epidural, identify yourself very clearly to your midwife or your, you know, your your doctor in the clinic um, and have them refer you to see an anaesthetist antenatally. Because yeah. you do want to you want to know. You want to know before before your labour starts. Um, you know, so yeah. Um, Perfect. I think. Is that everything? No. Is it? <laughs> On pain relief, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I thought, Amy's like, I thought you were trying. I know XO, this, is, XO. this is a bumper episode, Amy. I know you were trying to. I think end. we just have to cover uh, induction of labour now, don't I mean, we? Yeah. Management of labour. Yeah. Yeah. Which I won't be here for. Okay. I have to jet out the door, guys. All right, sorry. Sorry. We're going to do some fumbling little... roaching and We're back in the room. And we're back. We're back. We're sans roaching now, unfortunately. Um, okay, cool. So look, we were just going to do a little piece about induction of labour um, and intervention in, in kind of in general, but um, more specifically for your labour. Um, I've just lost my thing with my quote. Um, okay. Is it a catchphrase? No. <laughs> Um, but uh, okay, so 
Um, thinking about induction of labour or thinking about um, um, intervention in uh, labour, I think um, it's really important that basically if somebody wants to interfere in your labour, um, you have the right to informed consent, you have the in, a right to informed refusal. Um, and in, in Birth Like a Feminist, um, Millie Hill talks about, you know, basically when you're when you are you know, birthing like a feminist. Um, it's it's basically a feminist birth is not one whereby we kind of lie down and take whatever comes our way. Um, we ask the questions and we have the information and we make the decisions, feel empowered. Um, and your healthcare professionals, like they are healthcare professionals. They should be there to help you, to empower you and to inform you um, and answer the questions that you have. Um, so I do have a little quote from the book. Will I read that now? Yeah, read yeah. the quote. Okay, cool. Let me just, sorry now, I'll just find this here. Um, okay, you can give birth like a feminist in any setting and in any way, from elective cesarean section in a private hospital to free birth in the ocean. Um, all that is required is that you have somehow moved from a passive place where you view birth as something that happens to you and over you, uh, over which you have no control, sorry, uh, to a place of understanding that you may get a raw deal in this experience if you don't wake up and get yourself into the driving seat. Essentially, take charge, take control and make conscious choices. Okay. I think it's really a really good, good quote. It it's a really, really good, good It's a good book. That That's from Millie Hill from her new book, Birth Like a Feminist. Um, okay, so I'm going to talk about Method, methods of induction. Um, but actually, will I give you no, will I give you a little a little catchphrase, yes, a little like another a little acronym? Yes. All right. So, uh, if anybody is trying to interfere with your pregnancy or with your labor or your birth, use your brain. <laughs> <laughs> so, what have we got? B benefits. What are the benefits? Or what are the risks? A, alternatives. Is there an alternative to what you are suggesting? I, your intuition. Um, so what is your intuition saying to you? Um, and equally, you can talk to your midwife and sort of say, well, what's your intuition telling you here? You know, um, what do you, you know, what do you feel? What would you do if I was your sister? You know, all those, all those kind of things. Um, and then N, nothing. Well, what happens if we do nothing? Um, and I think that that's a particularly important one for the birth partners because in the heat of the moment, um, you know, they're the ones who are there to be with you and to ask those questions. Um, and I think I think it's a it is. It's really good. It's I nice. think it's a good one. You know, yeah. and we always say if you don't remember your brain, just remember your bra. Just the first three. <laughs> Benefits, risks and alternatives. Sorry. Okay. I'm going all parent out here now. I'm going yeah. to. <laughs> um, I love it so much. Um, okay, cool. So, right. Let's talk about induction. So, um, Amy, what are the common reasons for induction? So, basically, it's kind of down to two categories. Either something with the mother or mm -hmm. something to do with the baby. Yeah. So for mothers, typically diabetes, um, outside or gestational diabetes, mm -hmm. um, blood pressure related issues, cholestasis, um, kind of a lot of different, I suppose we 
I won't kind of list them all, but no, but the kind of common they're the ones. main ones. Baby you know? too big, baby too small. Baby too big, baby too small. Yeah, um, going concerns over your, about over baby's your movements. Date. Yeah, you know any kind of major or maternal or fetal concerns. Yeah, will kind yeah. of result in you being you know offered an induction an being offered. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, the ones that you listed there, they'd be the most kind of common yeah. ones, really. You know, yeah, there are obviously lots of. Various nuances and water's breaking. Water's breaking. That's of course. A, obviously a massive one. Yeah. One of the more normal and being overdue. Yeah. Cool. Um, okay. So, what are the different methods of induction? So, the first method, um, and actually, some people don't even think about it of a method as a method of induction, but a membrane sweep mm-hmm. um, or a swipe, as it's I've heard it commonly referred to. A swipe. <laughs> 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 um, yeah. So a sweep. So. Not people don't often say, "Oh, I'm going to have a membrane sweep today." Like people would just say, oh, "I'm having a sweep," mm. you know, or they would talk about being offered a sweep or asking for a sweep. Um, so, what is it? It's a vaginal examination, and then a finger is inserted through the cervix. Um, and so, if you imagine the cervix as a as a tube, and then the finger is kind of swept around the top of that tube, the aim is to separate the membranes from the internal opening, the internal os. That's the bag of water. The bag of water, so yeah, is the is the, the membranes around the baby. Um, and in doing that, it's said to release prostaglandins and possibly stimulate labour. Um, nobody knows if it'll work. Generally, if the head is, is well down, it certainly helps. Um, I looked after a woman yesterday and she said, oh, I asked him for a sweep, uh, but it didn't hurt, so I knew it wouldn't work. Because it only it only works if it hurts, <laughs> um, which just kind of made me really sad, actually, to be honest. Um, but it, it, generally, it is not particularly comfortable anyway, um, and it depends no. on the location of the of the cervix. Like right, you know, before labour starts, the cervix can be very high up in the vagina, um, and and right at the back as well, like quite posterior. And it's not a guarantee. Like that. No, be, it's not. Yeah, it's not a guarantee. No, 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 it's not. Um, but a sweep will be offered um, or you can discuss having one with your midwife um, on or after your due date um, and an obstetrician maybe before before your due date. Um, they might discuss with you at your at your clinic appointment. That's that's usually when it would be it would be done. Uh, sometimes people might offer a sweep kind of an early labour, um, you know, when, when yeah. you come in. But um what I what I will say though is an an important point is if somebody is going to do a vaginal examination, one they, they it, there has to be a rationale for it. Why are you doing this um, examination of my cervix? Um, and establish before they do the vaginal examination. Are you going to do a sweep? Are you going to offer a sweep? Because sometimes women don't want to sweep, and then it's said to them afterwards. Oh, I did a sweep there. I did a sweep there. Yeah. You know, so I do think it's important to ask the questions. Are you going to do a sweep? Is that what you're going to do? One, if you can do a sweep, you you, you might say, if you could do a sweep, I want one. Or I don't want you to do a sweep. Very clearly, you know, and I, I do think it's important um, to point out. Yeah. Um. Okay. So whatever the reason for induction, the methods um, are pretty similar across various units and certainly in Ireland there are different methods um, 
around the world. Um, but the most common one that we would see is something called propes. So PGE2, which is a prostaglandin, um, in propes form. Uh, propes is a little pessary, so it looks like a really small tampon, kind of looks like a shoelace with a piece of cardboard at the end of it. Um, it's um, And that little tampon is inserted really high up in the vagina in the posterior fornix, so in behind the cervix in behind the neck of the womb it releases 0.3 milligrams of um, prostaglandin per hour for 24 hours Mm. Um, there you go (laughs) (laughs) Um, so some units will encourage women to go home after they've had the propes um, inserted it stays in there for 24 hours um, and then to come back in to the unit if your labour has started if your waters have gone or if you have any concerns um about baby um and then other units will keep you in and they'll do more regular um monitoring on you um and it just depends on the circumstances of your induction and the where you are where you are yeah basically yeah um and then another form of prostaglandin that's used in uh quite commonly is a gel form now there is a tablet form as well but i don't have any experience with it have you ever used the tablets no um so there is a tablet form as well um but there is um a gel form so the gels come in one milligrams and two milligrams um and they're they're inserted into the same place so they have like a really long applicator like a tampon applicator but but kind of longer um, and they're inserted also into the posterior fornix. Um, but because that's sort of a, a one-off dose of one milligram or two milligram, um, you are typically reassessed after six hours. Um, the aim of, of the prostaglandins is basically to ripen the neck of the womb. So to bring the cervix forward, make it nice and soft, make it a little bit shorter um, and to be able to gain access to the membranes or the bag of waters around the baby. Um at the you know allotted period of time after the prostaglandin so for the propes generally um, you're reassessed after 24 hours for the gel you're reassessed after 6 hours and then more is given if it hasn't worked and same with the, same with the propes um, so that's kind of the first stage now at, at any point in that time um, you may go into labour which you know is kind of ideal that really. would be ideal yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and then the next phase so if the prostaglandin has worked then the next phase is called ARM or artificial rupture of membranes so this is an artificial releasing of the waters um, and it's done with something called um, an amni hook so it's like a very thin um, piece of plastic um, and it's it's out of vaginal examination basically it's inserted in between the two fingers like it's it's small you know it's not I remember when I was nine years old and my mother was about to have my youngest brother and she was heading in for an induction and my mother's a midwife and she described what I could only picture as a clothes hanger <laughs> and she's like they put this hook up inside me and they're going to break the bag of water all around the baby and then the baby's going to come out <laughs> I just I, I found it terrifying um but anyway here I am here you are yeah however many years later um but uh yeah so it's it's not a very intimidating looking instrument is that fair to say yeah I mean it kind of just like a little long piece of plastic yeah 
Yeah. 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 I, but it I think sounds, it sounds... It sounds terrifying and it actually isn't at all. It's like, oh, like I suppose hook kind of yeah. implies... Yeah. Something scary. You know. Like Captain Captain Hook. Hook. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. And then, so, so some women may um, establish their labour just with a a rupture of membranes um, and then for others that that won't be enough and then the next phase um, of an induction is to move on then to um, oxytocin so that is uh, the syntocin and drip or, or pitocin. pitocin yeah exactly you if like you, teen mom yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah if you if you're following any American websites or if you're if you're watching anything pitocin is the drug it's the same it's a synthetic version of oxytocin the the labour hormone, basically. Um, so the aim of the um, oxytocin is that it aids descent of the fetal head and um, dilation of the cervix and ultimately... Brings on contractions, Brings on contractions yeah. and results in the birth of the baby. Um, so um, those are the methods. Um, and what I would say is the main thing in terms of an induction is to understand why is it being done? understand the rationale for it being done and, you know, ask the questions. As I say, you're entitled to informed consent and informed refusal. Um, so know why it's being done. And sometimes I, I've cared for people who are kind of, oh, I'm willing to have the first couple of steps, but not the, the rest last, of it, yeah. you know. And it, it unfortunately, it just doesn't work like that. You kind of need to, it's kind of full duck now dinner. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like... What is it? Full duck or no dinner? Um, yeah, you kind of it's when you're in it, you're kind of in for the whole yeah thing basically. In for a penny, in for, in for a pound. A pe- yeah, yeah. And you kind of need to know everything that goes along with that. Yeah. Um, you we were talking earlier about what are the rates of how many people who are induced will end up having, having a, a vaginal birth or yeah. cesarean. Um, yeah, so certainly where I work, um, if a first time mom has an induction, she has a 44% chance of having a cesarean birth. Okay, so it's so, a lot, isn't it? Yeah. And I think in the next episode, obviously, when we're talking about birth, we'll talk more about unplanned and emergency because obviously yeah, not everything that is unplanned is an emergency. Um, but yeah, so it is, it is worth knowing, um, and, and more women or more people who have an induction, uh, will generally have an epidural for their pain relief, um, just results in higher levels of instrumental as we, yeah, as as we were just talking about. Yeah. So like, I do think all that is worth bearing in mind. Um, however, if it's going to be the safest thing for you in this pregnancy, for you and your baby, well, then maybe. Yes, that's the thing. You know? Yeah. It's just the... And for some people it is. I mean, yeah. typically, as Tara said, you need to ask the questions, is it needed? And if it is needed, then, you know, it's something that needs to be given very careful consideration, you yeah. know. Um, I suppose, again, conversations about intervention rates, that's probably a whole other podcast but if somebody is telling you they're concerned for you yeah or your baby then that is yeah recommended yeah yeah know? yeah absolutely um there are kind of more and more studies coming out about the impact of inducing women at an earlier 
stage in their pregnancy. So, for example, uh, there was a study done on reducing the risk of stillbirth by inducing uh, first time mums at 39 weeks rather than 41 weeks. And that was seen to slightly reduce the risk. However, if you did a study where you said, well, we're going to section every woman at 36 weeks, well, then you would also drastically reduce the risk. You know, so I think that this is only a very new body of evidence that is coming out about um, performing inductions earlier. Uh, There's not yet a Cochrane review that I could find that that and the, what the Cochrane Review does is, is bring together lots and lots of information um, and then uh, they release kind of a recommendation from there. Um, so, yeah, so that it's all, it's very new. Um, new ground. New ground. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, so those are kind of the bits, I suppose, um, about onset of labour, about pain relief, about... Um, induction and we have some dear Fanny questions I think don't we? Yes we do we were going to talk we were going to talk about were you going to say anything else about interventions in labour? Well basically the the say that so say the brain acronym okay you know yeah. whether it's an intervention in your labour or, in, or an intervention in your pregnancy um, just, to, just to ask the questions That's the thing and I suppose there are lots of different things that can happen in every labour so it's not really feasible to kind of discuss everything no and also I think it can be a bit intimidating if people are presented with a list of all of these things which for the most part are not going to happen exactly Um, exactly the vast majority of women that we care for have a straightforward pregnancy a straightforward birth and are healthy at the end you know mum and baby I'm Um, just looking for this question here yeah um, so yeah this is from I won't say the name um, <laughs> yeah. I think the no, whole point ma- I think the whole point is that it's anonymous questions um, okay so um, why is pain relief so shit like two paracetamol or pethidine one which makes you so dopey um, which makes you so dopey or an epidural is IV paracetamol ever used so um the reason, I suppose, why the main reason that pain relief options are so limited is that you can't do tests on pregnant women. So yeah. you can't, it's it's unethical and um, you just can't do it. So what happens is we typically just end up using the same medications that we know are meant to be safe in pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's why it's paracetamol, um, pethidine and epidural. Those are the main ones. We used to give sulpidine. Yeah. routinely up to a few years ago then a new study came out which linked um, it showed kind of coding was harmful to fetuses and mm. in infants as well mm. um, so we stopped using it mm. so we also can't use any NSAID drugs so we can't use ibuprofen diphene no. ponstin in pregnancy those are known to be unsafe so when you're taking out anti-inflammatories that's a massive chunk of pain relieving drugs yeah. that you would normally take yeah um, in terms of IV paracetamol, so IV paracetamol is a hundred euro bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, the efficacy, so it's meant to be, studies show that oral paracetamol and IV paracetamol are apparently the same. But anecdotally... Yeah. I 
definitely I definitely feel... think people feel better relief from IV paracetamol. Yeah. That's so that's paracetamol through the vein. Um you can ask, like that's absolutely no problem. Yeah. But also that you could just be told, no, we we our unit just gives tablets. Yeah. Unless you're vomiting. If you're vomiting then you would get IV paracetamol. Yeah, absolutely. So look, everything is always worth and ask, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, you don't ask, you don't get. If you don't ask, you don't get. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have a question? Did you have another one? Um. Gosh, did we have another one for labour? I know we definitely have a couple for our birth episode, which is our our next um episode that's coming. Yeah. Um. No, I don't. I think oh. that was the that was the one for. That was the one for today. Um, but yeah, I know this is a, this has been a bumper episode. I've really enjoyed it. It's been really full on. Um, and hopefully everyone enjoyed it. We're so happy to be back in the studio and back recording. Back in Denmark Studios. And uh, hope to be here more and more. Um, so yeah, will we wrap up? Yeah. Great. Um, so please rate, review and subscribe. Follow us on whatever uh, podcast listening platform um, you listen on. Um, give us a follow on Instagram at Boom Yonic. And um, you can email us if you like. Yonicboompodcast.gmail.com uh, um, And just to say thank you to Kev and Stee in Denmark Studios. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. While we are medical professionals and we love answering your questions, this pod should never be used in place of a real-life consultation with a midwife or doctor. If you have a serious concern about your health or a medical emergency, please go to your GP or to a hospital.